Well, great to see you guys this morning. Two quick things. Um, thank you for the way you are so generous. At the end of the year, I'm just especially grateful for you, but just a generous, generous congregation. I know it's because you love Jesus. Thank you. Also, thank you for your hearts for the top five, for the way you've steadfastly been praying for them. Just keep in mind that uh, holiday season might be an especially good time to reach out to somebody that you've been praying for. So just be alert and sensitive to God's leadings. If you stand with me, I'm going to read one of our paragraphs in today's passage. Today we're taking a, a big swath of Scripture. And uh, often I'll take just a paragraph. Today we actually have eight uh, a lot of ground to cover, but it all goes together. It's the trial of Jesus. And so, beginning in Luke 22, verse 47, I'll read the first paragraph. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber? Have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Word of God. Church, all four Gospels spend more time on the trial of Jesus than on the crucifixion. Now, the crucifixion is the main thing. In fact, the crucifixion is the whole climactic part of the Gospels, the whole climactic part of the Bible, the whole climactic part of, of world history, because it is on the cross that God makes salvation possible for us, it makes a way for us to have our sins forgiven and to come to life in Him. So all of history from the time of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the fall, uh, was headed toward the cross. So that's the main thing. And we want to be not simply Christ-centered people, but we want to be cross-centered people because that is really the heart of the biblical story. But the gospel writers spend more time on the trial leading right up to the cross than on the cross itself. Not that it's more important, but it just sets the backdrop. It sets the background and gives us insight into uh, the, both the, the, the heart of Jesus and the nature of the cross. And so that's what we're seeing today. Now, when we think trial of Jesus in the New Testament, actually, there were a series of trials. Three Jewish trials, three Roman trials. Now, why were there both Jewish and Roman trials? Well, think with me. If you've read the Gospels, the main uh, opponents of Jesus were the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, specifically. Not so much the people, but the leaders. They were threatened by Jesus. They thought he had committed blasphemy, making claims to be equal to God and the Son of God and the Messiah. Um, they, they were jealous of him. Uh, he was 
uh, unblinking in denouncing their sin and hypocrisy. So the Jewish religious leaders, they wanted him gone. The problem is, is that they were under the Roman authority, and they didn't have the authority to execute anybody. They could try, have trials, but they couldn't do capital punishment, and they wanted Jesus gone. So they have their three trials, the house of Annas, the de facto high priest, and then his son-in-law Caiaphas, the current high priest, and then the Sanhedrin, or their ruling council of 70 judges. After all of that, pronouncing him guilty, they whisk him off to the Roman governor and basically appeal, would you make sure he's executed, crucified? And there he is at trial before Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea, uh, Pilate then sends him to Herod, who is the Roman governor over the north area, Galilee. Herod sends him back to Pilate, where he is finally pronounced uh, that he will be crucified. So, six trials, six stages. Watch Jesus. Watch the beauty, the peace, the, the resolute heart of Jesus. Last week, we were surprised, or, you know, surprising that Jesus is, you know, gets right up to the whole reason that he that he, that he came to this earth to die, and he prays this prayer, Father, is there some other way than crucifixion? Not that he was afraid of the physical pain, though that was formidable, but because of bearing the world's sin and being separated from the Father was just overwhelming. But then he prays, yet not my will but your will be done, and it became clear to him this is the Father's will, and so he is now resolute. And you'll see that all through this passage as we go through it. All right, it's Thursday night. They've had the Lord's Supper, Passover meal, washing of feet. They've now gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. They prayed there an hour. He is in agony. He's sweating drops of blood. He's, he's under uh, so much pressure and, and grief about bearing the world's sin and bearing your sin and separated from the Father. And at that point, there's a rabble crowd that comes. You know, a bunch of folks in the night, and just think the pitch darkness, you know, without the electric lights of the city. And, and there are soldiers and scholars, and there are uh, religious leaders and chief priests and servants and uh, military officers in the temple. All this crowd coming, and they're led by Judas, one of his disciples. You see it in the passage we just read. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Various cultures around the world today, still men kiss men on the cheek as a sign of friendship and affection, and that's what Judas was going to do. We have the phrase, kiss of death, from this incident. A kiss of death, a kiss of betrayal. Judas uh, goes right up to Jesus. He could show the religious leaders where Jesus would be. They can't arrest him during the day because the crowds, the Jewish crowds, uh, would have protested and, and they were afraid of the Jewish crowds. But at night, under the cover of darkness, when nobody would see, Judas leads them there, gives him the kiss. At once, the uh, disciples who were with Jesus, they, they begin shouting, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Now, that's just too funny because you know, they're, they're going to be scared to death. Um, they're going to desert Jesus. But, yeah, but yet, when they're right there with Jesus, you know, they're all brave. So much bravado. You know, sometimes in my running 
for the last uh, 40 years, uh, I've been chased by a lot of dogs. And I have noticed that dogs are much braver if their master is right there with them. They just, you know, a lot of bravado. And uh, the, the disciples are like that. Your Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Now, Peter doesn't even wait for Jesus to answer. He just strikes. We know in other gospels, it's Peter. It, it would be. Takes a swing at the servant, not a big soldier, but a servant of the high priest. Misses his head, his skull, cuts off an ear. Jesus, in an act of grace, I mean, here's somebody coming to arrest him, and yet he touches the guy's touches the guy's ear to heal him. You know, that should have convinced them. Oh, he really is the Son of God. But no, no, they're not open. They are determined he's got to go. He's got to go. All righty, all of that's the background. Uh, Jesus challenges them. You know, why do you come with the clubs and the swords like I'm a criminal? You know, a bit of overkill here. Uh, before the first service, I was speaking with Ken Womack, who is one of our elders, and Ken uh, makes these trips to China, Africa, India, Indonesia, around the world, and he trains pastors and leaders. He was in China a few weeks ago, and you know sometimes he's in closed countries where Christians are not completely free. China, by the way, it's, um, it varies. Sometimes there's more freedom than others. Anyway, um, Ken and uh, Justin Stone from our church was on that, who preached a few weeks ago. He was on that trip. Uh, a couple of others, they were teaching, and all of a sudden, uh, a bunch of officials burst in to stop the, 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 the meeting. And, uh, they, you know, they, they put it to a stop. Fortunately, they didn't arrest anybody. If you're on our prayer chain, we'd love for you to get on our prayer chain. You probably got a, a, an immediate, uh, urgent request about that. You know, pray for this team over there because the police have just shut them down. Uh, no one was arrested. But they go outside later, and there are 40 other policemen out there. You know, overkill. You know, just a, a, a little bit like this for this passage. You know, more than enough coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus wasn't like he was going to fight against them and, you know, uh, call an army against them. So they arrest Jesus, take him off. The first stop is to Annas' house where they're going to have the first preliminary trial. And there it is where Peter denies Jesus three times that he knows him. And we saw this a few weeks ago. And uh, just picking up the last, the third of those denials in verse 60, Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. You know, this is like a movie script. Peter is denying him for the third time. At the same time, the rooster crows. And then we see, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord how he had said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And when, <coughs> and when, uh, where was I, Tim? Tim is looking for water for me or something. I know I usually have a bottle down there, but uh, I'm all right. Um, okay, where were we? Um, okay, Peter sees Jesus. I'll take that water. Thank you, Julie. So Peter sees Jesus, and when he does, he is overwhelmed and wrecked with remorse and just bitter tears over his betrayal of Jesus. He had talked so big. He had had so much bravado. 
And then when Jesus looks at him in his eyes, the one who has come to love him and to die for him, Peter is just undone. And, you know, as painful as that was for Peter, he could look back later and thank God for brokenness and contrition. And do you know, friends, that all through the Bible we see that God loves a broken and contrite heart. Think of David when the prophet Nathan confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba and killing, having her husband killed. And the brokenness. And it's the same with you and I. God loves it when he sees in any of us a tender heart, broken and contrite heart that leads to repentance, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, and it would with Peter. Perhaps one of the most famous examples of this repentance and brokenness in all times comes from a British man in the, in the late 1700s by the name of John Newton. Some of you may know that from the hymn writing song. But John Newton was an Anglican priest, but before that he had spent years as a slave ship captain. I mean, he was in charge of the ship. And you've read the stories. You know how horrific those were that maybe a third of those dear Africans would die. The conditions were so bad on the transport across to the New World. And they were treated cruelly and brutally. And it was just atrocious. And he was in charge of that. And later he becomes a believer. And... um, and even an Anglican priest, and when it hits him, it doesn't hit him at first. He rationalizes for a while. But when it hits him, he is just utterly undone and broken. And he, he spent the rest of his life fighting against the slave traffic in England. He influenced politicians like William Wilberforce. He became sort of a, a father figure to him. He wrote about his own story and, and how horrific the slave trade is. And he was completely broken. And of course, later, he wrote that grand hymn that is probably the most uh, sung Christian song in history, Amazing Grace. And he meant it when he said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see the grace of God, the grace of God. Peter would know that brokenness. And later that forgiveness and freedom. Okay, the trial continues in 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Can you see that? You see that? And by the way, when you read the, the Bible, especially the Gospels and historical parts, see it. See it. Okay, can you see Jesus? He's there. 64, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So Jesus sitting or standing, a blindfold around his eyes, and these soldiers just having fun. And the, the, the uh, mob uh, emotion, just, uh, you know, they, they're picking up on it. And, and, and what do they hit him with? Their fists? They're, they kick him with boots? Hit him with a club? Probably all of that. Mocking him? I mean, think about this. He is... The eternal God who created them, who loves them, and he's come to the earth as a human to die for them. And they are beating him and mocking him. And to me, it's just a picture of our unbelief and rejection against our God and against our Savior. They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. 
When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together. Now, Luke, uh, historians comment how he, the historical accuracy, he was such a careful writer. Sanhedrin couldn't meet in darkness, couldn't meet at night. Their verdicts wouldn't count. But as soon as it was daylight, they called the Sanhedrin. Seventy white-bearded, august religious scholars and, and, and uh, these dignified people who made the final decisions for the Jewish people. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, the first question they have for him, if you are the Christ, tell us. That's what they want to know. That's the bottom line. Do you really claim to be the long-promised, centuries-awaited Messiah who is the Savior and the King of the Jews and the Savior of all people? I mean, is that, are you really claiming to be that? If you are, tell us. And he responds, if I tell you, you will not believe, which is true, they wouldn't. And if I ask you, if I ask you about it, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And probably a collective gasp at that point. <gasps> he said it. I mean, he said more than that. He refers to two famous Old Testament passages, which they were very familiar with. The Son of Man, we think, you know, that emphasizes His humanity, but it emphasizes His deity. It's Daniel 7, and, and if, we, if I took the time to read that passage, you'll see it's this prophecy of the Messiah, but He's more than a man. He's coming in power and glory, and He'll reign forever. He is the judge. Here is the judge of all the earth um, humbling Himself to these flawed human judges uh, to stand before them. But he is the judge of all the earth. He is the Messiah, the Son of Man. And he is the one who is going to be seated at the right hand of God on high. The place of authority and privilege in all the universe. So they know what he's saying. And that settled it for them. They knew his claims. So they all said, are you the Son of God? Now, now think about this. Not one or two. They all said, they must have just immediately shouted out, you're the Son of God. You know, that's what you're claiming. Tantamount, being God the Son. Are you the Son of God? He said to them, you say that I am. Jewish lingo, that might have been a way of saying yes. But it could also be a way of saying, yes, I am, but not in the way that you say it. I, I am uh, in a different sense than you mean, in a fuller sense. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. He has made it clear what he's claiming to be. And they consider it blasphemy. So now, they have had their three little trials. Now, let's get him to the Romans and, and, and get a, a death penalty here. So in 23.1, they whisk him away. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Again, not one or two. This is far too important. All of them. You know, all 70 of these white-bearded, slow-walking old men, they get, gathered him together. They're marching across to the Pilate's palace, the praetorium. They get him there. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man. Three charges will come. Misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, three charges. Uh, the first one, he deceives our people. False, he didn't. 
Secondly, he forbids us to pay taxes to Caesar. That's not true. A few chapters earlier we read when he was asked about paying taxes, what did he say? He said, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So not true. The third one was true. He says that he himself is Christ, a king. He is the king. Pilate asked him, are you, actually the, the you is emphatic in the, in the original language there, are you the king of the Jews? Maybe he didn't look like a king. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Yes, I am, but not in the sense you mean, a much bigger sense, the king of the universe. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Church, one of the things that's striking about the trials of Jesus is how Pilate completely is clear Jesus is not guilty. This is the jealousy and the, uh, uh, the fearfulness of the religious leaders that's behind this. And he keeps protesting. I know he's not guilty. In fact, in another gospel, we see that his wife has a dream in the night. Don't mess with this man. He wants out of this, but he doesn't have the courage to stand up to the religious leaders who he's afraid will, will tattle on, on Caesar that he is soft on these uh, claimants to the throne. And he's discouraging taxes. And so he doesn't have the courage to stand for what he knows to be the truth. He says, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent. Can you see them? Urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Now, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean because in his mind, this is an out for him. Because if Jesus was from Galilee in the north, well, that's Herod's country. Herod can take care of this problem. Verse 7, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Now, this is the Herod who is the son of the Herod the Great, who built Masada, the temple, Caesarea, one of the great builders in the ancient world, any country. This is the son of Herod the Great who slaughtered babies born around Bethlehem because he didn't want any threat to a king. This was his son, Herod Antipas, not a good guy. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He doesn't want truth. He doesn't want life, forgiveness. He wants to see magic. He wants to see a sign. So he questioned him at some length. But he, Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called. This is the final trial. Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate, now this, the final sentence. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. You think, I'll, re I'll release him. You know, why beat him? 
and flog him uh, with the scourging. Well, some compromise, they, you know, they have such hatred, you know, we'll, we'll at least do this, we'll at least beat him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, the depth of the mob ranting and the hatred of the religious leaders. They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So here's Jesus. Here's Barabbas. Which one to release? Pilate addressed them once more. Once more. Desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. They won't even let him talk. Crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Pilate, who knew he wasn't guilty and deserving of death, acquiesces, compromises to the pressure of the religious leaders so he won't have further problems, and he releases Jesus to be crucified. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And next week we'll see the crucifixion. Now church, just think about that, that passage we, we went through fairly quickly. That Jesus is, uh, once he knows there's no other way, this is what the Father has for him, his he is steadfast, and nothing deters him. And he faces it unflinchingly with no intimidation about the Roman leaders or the Jewish high priests. This is why I came, and he dies. Church, also be very aware that the reason Jesus was crucified, the real reason he was crucified, was not the fear and jealousy of the religious leaders. Nor was the real reason the cowardice and unbelief of the Roman governors. The real reason that Jesus was crucified was because of the love of the Father for sinners like you and like me. Now think about it. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, and the eternities with the Father before the incarnation. You know, no body, just like the Father and the Spirit, Spirit, but God. He didn't need to take on a human body and get mocked and beaten and then nailed to a cross, except we needed it. It's because we would die in our sin unless he died in your, in your place. And so like Barabbas, you go free. The guilty goes free. And the innocent gets killed. It's the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. He dies in our place. And the reason that he did it was not because of the Jews or the Romans. This was all the plan and the purpose of God, the love of God for you, for you, for you. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4, 9, 4, 10. 
And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment, the propitiation for our sins, the love of God. And he showed it by sending Jesus. Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, church, this morning, you have got to feel and you've got to know that you are loved by God because he sent his son to die in your place. And like Barabbas, you get to go free forever. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Church, one final thing. When you think about Jesus and his life and how we want to live our lives like Jesus did, we want to live like Jesus. What would Jesus do? We want to we follow his selflessness, his courage. He's, uh, he, he doesn't fear man. He, he, he wants to please the Father. We want to imitate the example of Jesus. But if Jesus is primarily an example to follow, that will crush you and overwhelm you because you can never measure up to it. He is perfect. He bats a 1,000, and you only bat 300 at best. But he is not just our example. He is our Savior. He is not primarily our example. He is primarily our Savior. And before he calls us to follow his example, he wipes our sin away and forgives us completely and gives us life. And so now we want to follow his example, not to measure up and save ourselves, but because he's already saved us, we want to do it out of grateful love to him. Yes, Lord, I want to obey you. I want to please you because of what you've done for me. Church, this morning, see the cross of Jesus and see his love for you.